foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Church has summarized what the Bible teaches concerning the first petition. Here we confess the following. What is the first petition? Hallowed be your name. That is, grant us first of all that we may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works, in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Catechism 
states this very clearly in its very first question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to praise Him forever. That is why God created the earth and everything in it and us. That's why He sent His Son to die on the cross. That is why Jesus willingly suffered our agonies. That is why God brought about such a great salvation. This must always be first in our lives. And so the Lord Jesus puts this petition at the beginning of our prayer to pray for the hallowing of God's name. And we will consider two things. First of all, the holiness of God's name, and secondly, God's holy name in our life. For Worthy 47, we begin by confessing that the hallowing of God's name begins with the right knowledge of who God is, who is the Lord our God. Well, we learned from Lord 46 that what it means that He is our Father in Heaven, it means that He cares for us, that He adopts us as His children and heirs. Also, it means that His love and care for us is, is so great that the care of an earthly father is, is only a, a, a faint shadow of the care and love of our Heavenly Father. And then we come to this petition, the petition that speaks of the holiness of God's name. And if we think about that, about the holiness of God and the majesty of God, that is perhaps something that naturally might scare us off a little. Because doesn't the holiness of God give us a reason to be afraid of Him? Think of the division Isaiah saw. He heard the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he saw the seraphim cover their faces before this holy God. These, these perfect angelic beings, even in the presence of God, have to cover their faces. And how does Isaiah react? Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm, I am done. I'm undone. I'm finished. Because I've seen the king. The Lord of glory, I'm not going to survive this. The Lord is a holy God. And that's not described as, I don't know what kind of word to use in English, something nice. Isaiah didn't feel like he was getting a warm hug. But it's something to inspire fear. God's holiness inspires fear. It even makes people keep their distance. Think of Moses meeting the Lord at the burning bush. He got told to stop, don't come closer and take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Well, think of how God met his people when he first gave them his lot on Mount Sinai. He told them they had to sanctify themselves, cleanse themselves for three days before they were allowed to meet with him. And then if you touch the mountain, you're going to die. Don't come too close. For the holiness of God inspires fear. We're even told to fear the Lord, and it motivates people to keep their distance. Sometimes God's people are even told to keep their distance. And that's, that's also described in the Song of Moses. That we read from Exodus 15. The holy God throws the horse and his rider into the depths of the sea. Nations disappear before God's holiness. 
Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? So we get a picture here of God to be feared. He is a destructive force. At the beginning of this song, Moses expresses that the Lord is, is their protector, their strength, and their song. But at the end of the song, the Lord is pictured as one who drives people away from him. What must we conclude from this? How should we understand then the holiness of God? Well, to begin with, there is certainly a distance between us and God. Right? The Lord dwells far above us in light and glory. Right? Just think again of what Isaiah saw. The Lord, high and exalted, seated on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It spilled out of the temple. It's rather obvious that God's glory and majesty cannot be contained in a temple. After all, the Lord does not dwell in temples made by human hands, writes Paul in Acts 17. And the Bible says in the 1 Kings 8 that the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain the Lord or His glory. And we know elsewhere from Scripture, Isaiah 40 or Isaiah 44, which we read at the beginning of the worship service, God is not to be compared with anything or anyone. If we try to do that, we just run into a dead end. The Lord is holy and great and just. Just try to look up at the heavens at night, seeing all the stars. The Lord knows all of them. He knows all of them by name, even though there's trillions upon trillions of stars. And God runs and controls everything so well and so accurately that we can accurately predict when the sun comes up every morning. The return of the moon, or even a comet, years from now. The Lord is far above us in power, in knowledge, and intelligence, both as creator and as sustainer, the one who upholds the universe. And the universe is so big, we, we can't even reach the farthest corners of the universe, even with our most modern equipment. We don't know how big the universe is. And so when we look at all of this, the universe, the size of the universe, we look at the earth, we look at the depth of the oceans, we're impressed. And yet, the earth is just a speck in the universe. If the sun were hollow, the earth would fit into the sun 1.3 million times. And the sun is a small star compared to all the other, many other stars. And we are just specks on this little speck in the universe. So, look to the heavens and learn something about God. It's an understatement to say that God is great. He is far above us, far greater than us, far different than us. And this God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. This God hates sin. The Bible says he's not a man that he should lie. The God, God, is, God is truth, Scripture says. And he is, he is one who with holy zeal opposes sin. And he defends his own holiness. Think of how the Lord reacted when the two oldest sons of Aaron decided that they should burn unlawful incense before the Lord in the tabernacle. The Lord sent fire from heaven to destroy them. And you can read many other stories in the Bible similar to that. Think of 
Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It's really true. The Lord cannot be compared to us. He is the Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. And he has tens of thousands of angels at his disposal to carry out his wishes. And he is the only wise God who is righteous. He is the fountain of all good. And congregation, we put all of this together. This is what makes God holy. Set apart from anything in creation. All his characteristics, his attributes, his exaltedness, his, his almighty power, his wisdom, all of these things together are God's holiness. And yet, in spite of how high above us he is, he wants to have an intimate relationship with us. You learned, for example, the last couple of months from our series of sermons through Genesis 1 and 2. He wants to come near to us. Even in His holiness, He wants to have a relationship with us. He is the one who also builds a bridge across the chasm that separates us. He is the one who reconciles us to Himself. That's also clear from Isaiah 6. Because His holy God did not destroy His living. Instead, he sends one, one of his seraphim to purify Isaiah. With a live coal taken from the altar, the angel touched Isaiah's lips. And that coal was taken from the altar of atonement, from the place that represented reconciliation with God's people, between God and his people. So in that action too, we see something of the holiness of God's mercy, the, the holiness of his, of his grace. But we also see that in the rest of that chapter. We see some of God's holy goodness also in the fact that he sends Isaiah out with a message. Isaiah has to, is given an urgent message. A final appeal, you could say. And that appeal at first glance seems somewhat confusing. They will hear but not understand. They will see but not perceive. In a way, it's a message filled with irony. It's like, well, if that's how you want to live, then go your way and live that way. The congregation, this is God's giving a last, final wake-up call to his people. That's the flavor of the message. It's an urgent appeal. God is still calling them back to himself. In his holy goodness, in his holy mercy, he is not giving up on the relationship that he established with his people. And that shouldn't surprise this congregation because there's nothing new happening in this chapter, is there? God has always worked this way already right after Adam and Eve fell into sin. In his holy goodness and mercy, he came to them right away in the Garden of Eden. As soon as they walked away from him, God went after them. That is how he works. In his holy zeal, he works for and he works out the redemption of his people. And that, too, is evident in the Song of Moses that we read together. The song speaks of the Lord's desire to free his people, to redeem them, and to show him his holy mercy. And how does he do this? He does this by turning against Pharaoh with his holy wrath. So the Lord displayed his holiness by, by working mighty wonders in the land of Egypt, right? The ten plagues. 
there are other examples in the scriptures too. If we move farther ahead, go to Luke chapter 1. There we have the song of Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. When she was told that she was going to give birth to the Savior, what does she sing about? She sings about the very same thing. My soul magnifies the Lord. Holy is his name, for he has done great things for me. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So that's how the Lord reveals his holiness, his holy power, his holy might, by causing his son to be born for the Virgin Mary. Mary could sing about this because she witnessed the Lord's holy mercy and goodness. You see, in his goodness, in his holy goodness and mercy, our holy God opens up the way of reconciliation. And he did this, congregation, when by human reckoning this was not possible. There's no possibility for reconciliation if God says that in the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. It follows then that whoever has faith in Christ does not have to be afraid of the holiness of God. Whoever believes in Christ may be assured that God's holiness doesn't cancel out his fatherly love and kindness. In fact, it is by faith in Christ that we see how God comes near to us in his holiness. He has come near to us in his Son, his one and only Son. He became one of us, the Son of God. And he also remains with us through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers. And this God gives us strength when we're weak and courage when we fail. And perseverance when we stumble. And this is the same God who says, to whom will you compare me? The Holy One. That I should be like him. But this God also declares in Isaiah 40, I give power to the faint, and to him who has no might, I increase his strength. Even youths faint and go weary, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. The brothers and sisters, young people of the church, you can trust this holy God. And you can expect comfort from him, even in the most difficult and most overwhelming circumstances of life. The Bible says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's because of his holiness that he does this. Because he is faithful to himself. Because of his holiness, he is faithful to his covenant promises. And because he is holy, he works this out in our lives. He not only obtains redemption for us, he works it out in our lives. And we may call this holy God our Father in heaven. Father who will and does hold on to his children. Even in death, he doesn't let them go. We're safe with him into eternity. And that's what we're praying for when we pray the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. That's how the Lord Jesus prayed in John 17. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, 
they may be one even as we are one. You see, that's the goal of the Holy Father, to keep his children in his holy name. And that's how we may know him. In all his works, we confess, in which shine forth his almighty power, wisdom, and goodness, his mercy, and his truth. In the congregation, if that is how we may know him, and then it follows that his name must also receive a very high place in our lives. Knowing God then means that we become so filled with the knowledge of God that we want to know Him even better. That this becomes the number one priority in our life. Knowing God means that we want to see Him clearly in all His works and words. Knowing God is to thirst more and more for the knowledge of God. Knowing God is, is to know Christ, to know His majesty, to know His love, to honor Him as King, to worship Him as the head of the church. Knowing God is to love Him, to be completely satisfied in Him alone, to make the choice to want to serve Him, and know Him according to His will. Knowing God is to drink from the water of life and never thirst again. How many of us truly have this experience of God? How many of us make it our goal to have this experience of God? Isn't that true, brothers and sisters? We're often easily satisfied with what we know about God. We're satisfied with knowing a little about God. But when we're honest about this and we understand this, then we also understand the necessity of this petition. Praying this petition is a request that God's majesty and wisdom and power might become better known by us, but also through our thoughts and actions. The psalmist says one thing, have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What the psalmist means here is that when you begin to see a little of the beauty and the glory of God, when you enter into his presence through prayer and worship, then you also begin to see the purpose of your life. And the psalmist is saying, your life is to be a symphony of praise. God. In all our thoughts, words, and actions, God is to be honored and praised. And that includes that we do not add or subtract to the Word of God. We don't speak beyond the bounds of the Word of God. And also that we never honor any other creature or created thing about God, the first commandment. That we honor Him with our lips but also with our heart and our mind. And again, when we're honest about this and we understand this, we again, we understand the necessity of this petition. We need this petition. Because how often don't we speak the language of unbelief? We don't always talk like children of God, do we? We don't always act like we are full of His wisdom. And we often put our trust in earthly things, created things, or in ourselves. But when we understand that we must praise God in all our words, thoughts, and actions, 
should make us quick to pray this petition. Hallowed be your name. Help me praise your name, O Lord. Teach me to honor you with my lips and with my thoughts and my actions. Grant that my whole life might be directed to your praise, O Lord. You see, our entire life, God wants our entire life to bear witness to the redemption that he has given us, that he has obtained for us. And that means that the people around us, both in the church and in our neighborhood, should be arrested by how we live. Our life should be a testimony to the holiness of God, to what Christ has done for you. And that counts for young and old. Being a witness for Christ is not the prerogative of the adults in the congregation. Young people, you're not exempt from this requirement. When you go to work, when you go to school in the morning, you go on a date in the evening, hallowed be your name is what must dictate your thoughts and words and actions. Pray that you would receive the strength to honor God with your whole life. That God would give you the grace to fulfill your office and calling as prophet, priest, and king. When you pray this way, though, you may also expect that he will answer your prayer because it is a prayer that is in accordance with his will. You can count on his blessing when you pray this prayer because this is the kind of prayer that God will hear and answer. When you are his child, he wants you to be a vessel for honor. Even though you have a thousand character flaws. Because Christ overcomes all things, even your character flaws. He can make you into a vessel for honor. He can make you part of the symphony of praise to God. And then it is possible for you to live to God's honor and to praise His name and to have the desire to make this a priority in your life. When you trust in Him to help you to honor the first petition, then His glory will shine through you. His wisdom will become your joy. And when God answers this petition for you, you will also increasingly begin to know why you exist. The purpose of your life, the meaning of your life becomes more clear. Because that's why Christ died for you. That's why you've been freed from, from slavery to sin and from the kingdom of darkness. The Lord in Christ has saved you from a meaningless life. So when God answers this prayer, and life has meaning, and we have the assurance and the hope of eternal life. And even though in this life we don't hit the right notes all the time, you could say this, this symphony of praise that we're a part of, there, there's still dissonance in that symphony. There's a lot of false notes. One day we'll 
be part of a symphony in the congregation that, that will have perfect sound. No more false notes. And we will stand together in the temple of God's glory, where all the earth with loud rejoicing bursts into song to praise the Lord. And in the meantime, keep on praying this petition. Because the Lord wants you to get there. That's his goal for you. So that one day with undivided loyalty, you will make the God's name great. Amen. Amen.